You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Christian Regenbrecht. Uh, he's the CEO and shareholder of Cell Phenomics. Uh, they make uh, patient-derived organoids, uh, 3D organoid models, which we'll get into in detail. So, Christian, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm fine, and I'm happy to discuss what we are doing uh, with you and your audience. Oh, good. Well, tell me what uh, what you know. Organoids are being made by a, a large number of groups. What's the uh, focus of your group? So um, the origin of what we are doing is from a pan-European project uh, called the IMI Initiative Oncotrack, uh, where we started generating organoids from colorectal cancer. And it was a partnership with FPIA, meaning that also pharma partners were part in, in that consortium. And uh, they were asking for, could you do drug screening for us on the organoids? And together with uh, colleagues and now friends from Eli and Libby, we developed a pipeline for high throughput drug screening on a 384-well format. And yeah, what we did then is uh, we were screening substances, single substances and combinations. Uh, we did it quite successfully. And so we started our own company in 2014. And then I moved from academia totally to the new company in 2016. And yeah, just this year, we founded a second company which focused on bringing this technology directly to the patients and oncologists. So you take a patient's tumor cells and you culture them into making a, a, a tumor outside of their body, you know, in a, that, like a lab environment so you can study it? Yes, that is in principle correct. So we receive either from surgical specimen or biopsies, um, pieces of the tumor. Ideally, we also receive a, a bit of patient blood, like 10 to 20 mil. Uh, so we can do co-culture models with autologous immune system cell or immune cells from the patients. And yeah, what, what we're doing is we cultivate those cells and we have established protocols that allow us uh, to start the screening process uh, within like three weeks from most of the uh, solid tumors. And uh, then we do the drug screening of substances that oncologists suggest 
uh, that could be benefiting the patient. So you deal with people that have colorectal cancer. Do you take um, cells from just one of their tumors? I mean, do these people tend to have multiple tumors or just one? No, no. So what, what we um, ideally do if um, the tumor, unfortunately for the patient, is, is big enough and we can receive samples from multiple regions, uh, we can uh, also investigate the intratumor heterogeneity, meaning the different kind of clones that are um, laying in the same tumor. And we have very interesting results generated uh, with that. For example, uh, we found in one patient where we had five regions, uh, that within these five regions, there's an up to 30-fold difference in the response to standard of care drugs, and that only um, a combination of drugs will lead to a sufficient effect on the tumor. And uh, that was, for me, really a eureka moment, because until that point of time, I always thought, okay, we're in the 21st century. Why is the first-line treatment of colorectal cancer still a classical chemotherapy and not a targeted therapy? And now I know it's because of the heterogeneity. You try to remove the uh, amount of clones, reduce them um, to a smaller population, and then with targeted treatments, you may have a better chance to hit those tumors. Well, you're looking at different regions of one tumor, but what about if someone has more than one tumor in their colon? What if they have like, you know, three or five or 20 of them? What about sampling different tumors themselves to see if the heterogeneity goes to a new level? That is almost, almost the trivial um, thing, doing the uh, different tumors in the same organ or spread uh, uh, throughout various organs. And what we do is we cultivate those separately where, wherever we can get hold of the, the tissue uh, and, and try to compare them and do predictions. Interestingly, it also makes a difference in the drug screening process if you have only a single population and do a screening, or if you co-culture different populations from within the same tumor and do a drug screening then. So it seems that there is also a paracrine signaling between different cell types, either from the same tumor or multiple tumors within the same patient. And that is something we are currently investigating and learning a lot from. Well, can you, if you have, um, if there's multiple tumors, can you identify a lineage amongst them? What I mean is, let's say um, mm -hmm. someone's colon has, you know, I don't know, 10 tumors. And you sample them mm -hmm. all. Can you tell which one arose first? And do the other ones arise from the first one? Or do they seem to arise independently? Um, that, is, that is something uh, that is very different from patient to patient. So there are some patients where you have, I would say, like the cambric explosion of mutations um, very early, and then you have very many uh, populations sitting side by side, and then it's very difficult to do a reconstruction. Uh, but then you see in, in other tumors, um, that, or in other patients, that the tumors harbor um, always the same um, driver mutations, and then an additional set of passenger mutations which add up to it, and there you can do tumor reconstruction. So we have published earlier this year uh, for, for one patient um, such a thing where we um, did a tumor evolution pattern uh, together with some bioinformaticians. Well, what have you noticed about how one particular tumor evolves over time? I mean, supposedly a given tumor starts with one cell that just keeps dividing and then morphing and mutating is that the uh, the theory and do you observe that 
Um, yes, of course, there, there must be the, the one tumor cell um, that started all the process. Um, but it is not said that uh, during the process of tumor development and at the stage uh, where you um, identify and diagnose the tumor that you really find this cell of origin. It could be that this is a clone that does not survive the entire process and that dies off early. So we cannot really say if what we see when the tumor is clinically diagnosed is really the setup or the, the, the cells with the fused mutation is really the tumor pounding cell. It could be that this is just um, coming up later um, because usually when you can identify and diagnose tumor, uh, you have 10 to the power of eight to 10 to the power of nine cells already in the tumor, making it very difficult to determine is this really the progeny of the uh, tumor founding cell? So you, it's okay. So you, know, you have a lot of cells, I understand. But when you look at the tumor, what if some of the cells only have five mutations and then some of them have 10 and some of them have 50? Perhaps that would mean that the ones that have 50 were the ones that used to have 20 and used to have five. And there's a lineage. There's a, you cool. know, uh, there's descendants of the original tumor cell. Can you... Has anyone been able to tell such a thing or is anyone looking even for such a thing? Yes, there, there are multiple studies and I think um, who's, who's really leading the field is, is Marco Gallinger in the UK, uh, who also published the, the first real genomic paper on intratumor heterogeneity in 2012 in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, he, he, I think, is, is the one person uh, that, that you should go to if you're interested really into the development of the intratumor heterogeneity. Because at that point where you have uh, mutations in the DNA damage repair system, um, the accumulation of mutations uh, gets, gets really um, weird and wild. So that is the point uh, where we cannot or we, we are not interested in, in doing the tumor reconstruction uh, on an evolutionary basis, but try to, to uh, map it back to the drug response because this is how we hope to be able to help the patient. Yeah, no, I know you try to evaluate drugs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll turn the questions back there. Um, how heterogeneous have you seen a given tumor to be? Are there, I mean, how many, you said, you spoke in the beginning, there could be like regions of heterogeneity, but you know, within a tumor, I mean, how many different types of cells are there that you've seen? So that is also very dependent on the um, stability of the genome. So if you have a microsatellite instable tumor, you uh, would expect much more heterogeneity uh, than on a microsatellite stable tumor. And um, same is true about the origin of, of the tumor. So if the tumor is, for example, caused by an oncogenic agent, uh, then one has specific mutation patterns that you always find throughout the genome, uh, but there can be also um, virally uh, induced tumors which have a more um, difficult pattern to decipher. And we must not forget that all the things we are just talking about mostly apply to carcinomas. And there are also soft tissue tumors, sarcomas, which are on the genomic level totally different. You find either just a few mutations, which are usually fusion genes, 
or the genome of such a patient or such a patient's tumor looks like if you have aimed at it with a shotgun and a variety of mutations which are not seen commonly, for example, in xenomas. So that is also dependent on the entity that you're looking at. Yeah, the reason I ask about the evolution of the mutations is that if you're able to identify a core set of mutations that all the tumor cells share, that seems like the most targetable thing for a cocktail of drug therapy, not the individual mutations that they all have. I mean, if there's a thousand different variations, how would you ever target a tumor? You know, they have to, I would think they would have to have a core set of mutations you can go after. So in order to find that, you would have to look at, I guess, the, you know, I guess the lineage and the progression of a tumor to see what's preserved. Yes, either that, or you really have to delayer the tumor um, mutation by mutation and say, okay, uh, let's say 90% of the tumor volume of the cells contain a certain RAS mutation or a PS3 kinase mutation or whatever driving mutation you imagine. And if you kill off that, this already uh, reduces the tumor volume by large. So um, it, it doesn't make too much sense if, you, for example, we just had a tumor where we found a mutation um, in one of our cell cultures at 100%. When going back to the original patient tumor, we had to sequence with a 2000x coverage, and only then we were able to see this specific mutation. So <clears throat> I would say in regards of treating the patient, first aim at, at the most prominent um, mutations or start as it is currently done clinically with a classical chemotherapy that it's all rapidly dividing cells equally. I mean, also to the distribution of the mutations, what if the tumor, let's say it's like an orange, it has a rind of certain mutations on the outer part, and then in the inner part it has different ones. Would mm -hmm. it make sense in a case like that to target the outer stuff first with a drug, and then after a short period of time then start targeting the inner stuff? Perhaps the order in which a drug is given would be critical if it had morphology. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, that could definitely be, be critical, the order in which you hit the cells. But it is already known since at least uh, five to 10 years um, that you have either migrating cells or proliferating cells. So um, I would say this dependent on the situation the patient is in. If you want first to hit those cells that generate the neoplasm, the, the new growth of tissue, or if you try to hit those cells that tend to migrate and um, um, give, give rise to metastases. For example, there are the Mullerian mixed tumors, and these tumors have uh, just micro primary tumors, um, which in about 90% of the patients are not found in the body. Um, but they give a uh, quick rise to growing metastases. So at these tumor types, it would be crucial to stop those cells from migrating into the body and starting um, um, uh, metastases. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the metastases would be far worse. Right. Which, so, um, okay. in your observation, which is more targetable? Which cells are more susceptible to, uh, you know, to the effect of drugs, the metastasizing migrating cells? You know, the original tumor cells, the proliferating ones. So all, all, all cells that do um, have a rather uh, quick uh, metabolism or divide quickly, um, these are the cells that are better um, to, to target. Uh, of course, we have also to observe their effects like uh, ABC transporters or PGP 
peak glycoprotein, uh, which are active pumps that uh, help the tumor to fight against any kind of chemotherapy by actively pumping the substance out of the tumor cell. So that is also something we have to keep in mind to block these kind of mechanisms in order to make um, the, the treatment really work. Yeah. You mentioned um, signaling amongst the various tumors. What, what are you looking at in that regard? Have you seen signaling amongst the organoids that you're culturing? Yes, so <clears throat> together with colleagues from the NMI, which is uh, a private uh, research institute um, in southern Germany, uh, we have developed um, an approach to do targeted oncoproteomics, meaning uh, it's a Western blot-based method, and we can interrogate up to 200 with 200 antibodies um, the proteins and the phosphoproteins, meaning the post-translational modifications. This gives us a very good impression about um, the signaling pathways that are used by the cell. And as we can do it in vitro, we can do time resolution experiments, seeing the immediate early effects and seeing the later effects. So we can also get an understanding of how cells try to circumvent the treatment. And so what I see as a big um, point in the future that um, will enable us to fight cancer uh, better than we are able to do it today is proteomics, specifically targeted oncoproteomics with only a limited set where we have little amounts of tissue that we need, but get a direct answer to which pathways were activated, which pathways are used to circumvent the treatment, and how to do a double blockage by combinatorial treatment. Um, what about exosomes that would be given off by the tumors? I've heard that uh, you know tumors do give those off, and especially if they're exposed to certain drugs, they they tend to give off like tons of exosomes. Are you looking at those? Yeah. I, I'm I'm happy that that you're asking for that because we just um, this month started a project together with the University Hospital in Göttingen on exploring the exosomes, what we already know from prior. Uh, um, from preparatory experiments is that <clears throat> we can isolate the exosomes that are secreted into the cell culture medium and use this um, to decipher the exosome load. I know that there were like two or three papers uh, mentioning that the, the exosome load gives you an idea of where this next site of metastasis will be. And this is something where we want to compare if the in vitro signals that we receive in our organoids are comparable to those exosomes that can be identified in the patient. And then another thing I've heard of, which makes it even more complicated, is that supposedly uh, each tumor has its associated microbial fraction or its own microbiome, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you recreate that when you're making organoids, but you know, how critical a part do you think that is? Oh, that, that is really a good question, um, which I honestly cannot answer at that moment. Um, it's just educated guessing what, what I can do. Uh, so we all know that the microbiome seems to be stronger or more influencing than we thought like uh, five years ago. Um, but I haven't heard of any convincing experiment in vitro reconstructing the microbiome uh, for, for organoids or for tumors. Uh, in regards of how this could link and translate to patient treatment. Well, how much of um, the behavior that you're seeing um, appears to be unexplainable? 
so far with the current organoids that you're making and the models you're using? Is there a vast amount of behavior and things that just are mysterious and perhaps is because the model needs to be, you know, improved somehow, maybe by including the microbial fraction or considering other types of uh, elements? I mean, I know it's, it's, it's a big guess, but overall, what do you see? So in regards of um, looking into the glass ball and looking into the future, I would say the, the next level of evolution of in vitro models, organoid models, will be co-culture models with um, immune cells, which are currently undergoing in a certain um, amount of labs. Um, then we are currently exploring together with people from the University of California um, doing angiogenesis co-culture models with organoids. And what I think in regards of being able to, to help the patients will be a great step forward if you combine IPS technologies and organoid technologies to uh, mimic the metabolism of a patient by generating iPS liver cells, which are then patient-specific, and see how a certain drug or combination of drug is metabolized by that specific patient. And then you can, I hope for the patients, much better distinguish which amount of drug would you really need, because the current standard for most of the drugs is uh, body weight and body surface, which is, I would say, not exactly rocket science. Mm. Um. In terms of the efficacy of what you've found already, uh, I mean, how much better are you able to identify? You said you have a high throughput model now for testing drugs on these organoids. So when you say high throughput, how many drugs are you able to test and how many combinations? So um, when, when talking about the 384 plate, uh, we can test up to 12 substances easily in um, statistically relevant multiplicates. Um, in terms of drug combinations, we usually do a six to six matrix of two drugs and identify those, how those interact with, with each other. This gives us enough resolution to observe not only additive effects, but also synergistic effects where we can then see that um, small changes in the concentrations really need to a jumping high effect on the tumor. Uh, which then means that we would be able to reduce the overall concentration of chemotherapy, meaning in the best case scenario, we can um, smoothen a little bit the side effects, but still have a very strong effect on the tumor. Let me give you one example. We had a tumor, uh, colorectal cancer again, with um, a RAS mutation. And of course, a colorectal cancer patient with a RAS mutation would not um, be prescribed cetuximab, and we tested it in vitro and cetuximab alone didn't work. The same was true for rigorafinib, but the combination of cetuximab and rigorafinib for this patient uh, was really, really the best thing that we have tested in the, in the patient. And we have tested like uh, 12 single substances and the combination thereof. And so we um, have tested this then in an animal model with the same uh, patient tumor, so a PDX model of the same tumor. And we could um, there really clarify that this combination also in vivo was the most effective. And this brings us to a brand new level of exploring how patients can be treated in the future. Have you seen, um, you know, with a given chemo regimen, uh, just by changing the, the various levels of the drugs involved, does that create a dramatically different effect? Like what, 
what are the big levers that seem to um, affect tumors very strongly based on your models and the insights you're getting? Um, the most effective thing that we see is double blockage of the same pathway. For example, if you combine a MEK inhibition with an ERK inhibition or something at the receptor level with something more substantially down, downstream of the same pathway, that is very, very effective. And also, if you, if you look at intersection pathways, for example, where um, mTOR meets PR3 kinase, if you're blocking at those nodes, then you can be very, very effective in the drug treatment. Okay. Any, again, anything you've seen that uh, really surprises you in its efficacy? Or you know, do you have any ideas or pathways to go down? You know, I don't know yeah, if you can disclose them or not, but what, you know, what are some areas that you really want to explore you think would be uh, very impactful? Um, what was very surprising to us was that in this um, cold rectal cancer um, model, uh, cetuximab plus regorafenib were um, working together like a charm and had high synergistic effect, effects because each drug alone didn't work at all and it wouldn't, from, from the clinical use, wouldn't be considered to even administer uh, cetuximab at, uh, to this patient. And I think these are the, the moments where you can really um, appreciate the organoids because you, you have the ability to test things um, on a broad basis without killing or harming the patient. And, and this is, I think, the big fascination and the big issue um, that, that we are happy working with. And how fast can this be done? You know, someone has active cancer. I guess during a surgery, during a resection, that's when you're getting your material. And how fast can you uh, do a turnaround to tell them, all right, try this, try that? So our, our absolute um, fastest, uh, fastest test uh, was with a patient where, uh, with a breast cancer where we had nine days from surgery to we have had tested the substances that the oncologists would have considered to administer to, to the woman. So nine days was the best. In average, we need about four weeks. Well, okay. And then you'll speak to their team that's treating them and say, all right, this is the particular chemo regimen you need to give them. And you tailor it, uh, you know, certain levels of drugs, certain drugs being there or not there, length of treatment, that kind of thing. Or do you leave that tailoring to the doctors on hand? Like, how do you advise on what to do based on what you find? So what, what we do when working together with university hospitals, uh, we participate in the molecular tumor pathology conference. So if there's a molecular tumor board, um, we discuss with the oncologists and the sequencing people the pros of con and cons of, of different um, uh, regimens. And uh, we, we leave entirely to the oncologist how he or she treats uh, the patient uh, because at the end of the day this is the person responsible for the benefit of the patient for the life of the patient and for the well-being so uh, this person is in the driver's seat no matter what no matter how sure we are the oncologist needs to justify whatever he or she does to the patient and the family and therefore he or she is in the driver's seat so are you at the point where you've now advised and uh, a, a different regimen has been given to actual live patients, or are you not there yet? No, we, we are already there, and we, we do it like a co-clinical trial. So we mm. do suggestions. Uh, the oncologist treats the patient, 
And uh, if uh, the oncologist um, decides to treat the patient differently from what we have suggested, we also test what the actual patient is given. And then we do co-trial and see does the patient benefit? Do we uh, predict the response in vivo, in vitro, what happens in the patient? And this is currently ongoing with a couple of university hospitals here in Europe. Have you gotten any results yet that you can look at? Are you um, seeing any difference in results or no? Yes, uh, we, we see already um, results uh, which are very encouraging and which helps us to extend those trials. Um, but as this data is not published yet, I would rather not mm. comment to this in more detail. But there will soon okay. be um, something published in this direction. All right, but it is encouraging so far. Yes, it is, definitely. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's or, great. Let me, or let me put it like this. I would never uh, allow a chemo if I had a tumor which was not tested before. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah, because I guess uh, it's just a bludgeon that may not work at all depending on what yep. the, uh, you know, the cell types are in that person. There was, I think it was in, by the end of 2018, a publication by Roger Janis and Nicola Valeri in the UK, where they tested, I think it was 115 colorectal cancer patients, did a co-clinical trial, and uh, were correctly predicting um, not working chemotherapies or targeted therapies uh, with 100% negative prediction value. And I think the um, positive prediction value published in that paper was at 88%. So comparing this with today's standard of care results, uh, 88% and 100% great numbers. And this is very encouraging. Yeah. How, how expensive is it to do this process? You know, like for a person, uh, how expensive do you think it will be to have this done? You know, when will it be? Uh, is it very affordable or is it still very expensive or? Where is it at economically right now? Well, um, that's, that's the question of uh, what, which price tag do you put on a human life if you consider right, it right. Um, expensive or um, affordable. But uh, we are currently at a price point uh, of about 5,000 euro for testing up to, I think, five substances. Uh, and if this is a decision of life or death, 5,000 euros seem to be quite a fair number. Yeah. How many substances do you guess would be needed to test in order to really identify what a person would need or not? I think this may be significantly higher today because we are just at the beginning of the learning curve, but I would expect it to decrease over time. So um, today what we are doing as, as our primary effort is um, there's, of course, always a limited set of substances which the oncologists um, uh, consider themselves uh, to use, and this is the primary set we are testing. If the cells are growing well, and if um, um, this is a, a case we are very interested in, we just over time test more and more substances and combinations for the same patient uh, without um, taking into consideration that this is clinically relevant, this is just for our learning curve. Um, but yeah, that is the research we are doing uh, in our company. Okay, so an oncologist may only have seven substances total that they can use. You can at least yes. test those different combinations, strengths, etc. Okay. I can give you the example of what I told you before about the cetuximab and rigorafinib. Uh, even when we, on a scientific level, were publishing the data earlier this year, one of the reviewers was 
why did you test cetuximab at all? Because cetuximab would not be administered clinically to that patient. And the, the simple and trivial answer to that question is because we can. And we can do it in vitro. Uh, it doesn't harm the patient. It doesn't take more time because we can do it all in parallel. And um, whatever um, educated guest will, will bring us closer to healing a specific cancer is something I'm happily doing. And in theory, yeah. we could also in parallel just uh, look at the clinicaltrials.gov website and from there uh, also test already for specific patients um, clinical trials that are currently open and then suggest to the oncologist to administer this patient into the specific trial because we um, believe this could benefit the patient. And um, is there a tumor database for different organs, you know, like colorectal tumors? And are you contributing to such a database, you know, because you're characterizing and culturing tumors from dozens, hundreds, and eventually maybe thousands of people? Is, yeah, is there such a thing that exists? And do you use that data and do you contribute to it? So there are um, commercially available databases um, like Repositive IO. Uh, which offer um, uh, databases for cancer models, which then can be used by biotech and pharma, or there are uh, public databases like the ICGC or the Cancer Genome Atlas, um, and these uh, databases uh, can, can contribute to our understanding. So what we are currently developing in-house is a database where we try to correlate the genomic level the drug screening level and the proteomic level, because there's at this point not a best practice approach to sync this uh, kind of data set. And this is also something we are currently exploring uh, and we were uh, granted some, some money from the Berlin Senate to explore these things. Okay, well, well Christian, this has been very interesting. I hope you're okay with the range of questions. And uh, for people that are interested to follow your work, and to wait for the new papers to come out, where can they go? How can they find out what you're doing and uh, you know, keep tabs on when your new work is coming out? So we have set up um, two, two websites. One is um, www.selfgenomics.com and the other is asc-oncology.eu. Um, the first one is for the industry. The second one is for doctors and patients. And um, I'm happily answering all questions um, arising from patients or doctors via email or by telephone. So um, happy to communicate and get the message out there. And yeah, one last thing from, from my team when they heard today that I'm uh, giving an interview that will be a podcast, they said, could you send us some greetings, which I'm now happy to do. And if you don't cut it out, so they know that no, they did well, the thing. No, <laughs> so we'll keep it in. Thank yeah, you. That's great. That's great. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. 
Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.